question. Here we go. God declared Lot to be a righteous man, yet this righteous man was willing to sacrifice his virgin daughters to a mob of perverts. It is hard to reconcile this. The NIV study Bible notes on 2 Peter 2.7 suggests Lot was merely following customs of that time. However, how this could be construed as anything but evil is difficult to understand. Jimmy, we'll start with you. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Full disclosure, the the first three questions of of this service were sent in in advance. So... Uh, I've, I've had some time, so I guess I'll take the lead on these questions uh, if you all want to jump in. Um, okay, um, obviously, you know, what happened was evil. I mean, what's being referred to is in Genesis 19 in Sodom and Gomorrah, um, you know, when a couple of angels appeared to Lot and... Um, you know, there was a mob of homosexuals, and he did uh, offer his daughters to them. Um, you know, there's no other way to describe that, I think, morally, other than uh, evil. Uh, but yet, in, uh, in, in Second Peter, the Bible does call uh, Lot uh, righteous. Um, here, once you put up Second Peter 2, 7 and 8... Um, it says, um, well, go back to verse 6, sorry. It says, turning the city of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes, condemn them to destruction, making them an example to those who afterward would live ungodly, and delivered righteous Lot, who was oppressed by the filthy conduct of the wicked. For that righteous man dwelling among them tormented his righteous soul from day to day by seeing and hearing their lawless deeds. So, um, you know, when God calls um, Lot righteous, refers to the fact that, that he was saved by the grace of God, that God had, had chosen him, had given him favor, uh, I think, and probably to some degree because of his uh, association with Abraham, but that he, that he was saved. Um, you know, so he's an example that was saved completely by grace. He was positionally righteous, but he did un- unrighteous things, which we do the same thing. Um, I mean, if we're not... We can be a Christian if we're not walking with Christ, if we're putting ourselves in bad situations and circumstances, which he did. We're still capable of committing uh, any sin that there is uh, to commit. And, and that's really what, um, what Lot did. Um, but I think at the same time, he's also an example of, of the effects of sin I mean, it says he tormented his righteous soul from day to day by seeing and hearing their lawless deeds. And so when the Bible tells us, you know, he walks with the wise will become wise. He walks with the fool, with fools. Uh, you know, he walks with the wise will become wise. If, you know, if we walk with the foolish, we're a companion of fools. That, uh, you know, that affects us. That, that's what it's saying. And, of course, we reap what we sow. I mean, because of what Lot did, he lost his wife. He lost his home. He lost his son-in-laws, and then, you know, he had offered his daughters up in this way. But if you remember kind of, in a sense, the end of the story, at the end of uh, Genesis chapter 19, is uh, after those uh, young ladies had lost their husbands, and, you know, they were fleeing and all these kind of things, uh, they got their father drunk, uh, committed incest with him, had uh, sons who became the Ammonites and the Moabites, who are some of the biggest villains in the Old Testament, which was kind of the end result of all of this. Uh, so, uh, you know, we can be 
saved by the grace of God, be going to heaven and live in such a way that we ruin our lives and the lives of other people um, and really even mess up generations to come because we're not actually walking with the Lord. And uh, I think Lot exemplifies that, uh, that to us. So he was a righteous man who did unrighteous and evil things is how I would see it. Uh, yeah, I, I would agree with everything Jimmy has already said. And, and just, you know, one thing we need to remember is just that, that none of us are, are righteous in and of ourselves. We're righteous because of the justification of Jesus Christ. Lot was saved just like we are uh, and all the Old Testament saints because they were looking forward to the, 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 the finished work of Jesus Christ. We all look back to the finished work of Jesus Christ. So there's that. You know, he was righteous because he was declared righteous. Uh, justification by, uh, by faith. Uh, you know, we're saved by grace through faith. But then there's another. The, the cultural aspect of it is, is one thing that I would uh, point out because that was part of the question. Um, and having served with my family in West Africa for over 14 years with the International Mission Board, we don't commonly think about that uh, in America, and, and it's difficult for us to understand. But let me give you a quick example of how culture can affect, you know, decisions that people make. Uh, and, and this is not to excuse a lot in any way, shape, or form. But, uh, you know, when we would have volunteers to come in and help us to serve among the Walla people, in Burkina Faso, the chief of the Walla people would talk to one of his sons, and they would evacuate his whole home courtyard so that our volunteers could come in and stay there because it was such a priority in their culture of how they treated others coming in, okay? You think about that. Would you, would you, somebody you didn't know coming into your home, would you give up I mean, we, we just wouldn't do that kind of thing. We, we wouldn't give up our master bathroom and bed, you know, bedroom, much less our whole house normally, right? So uh, that, that, that says something about, you know, the priority in, in other cultures of, of, of welcoming in guests and, and sheltering them, taking care of them. So in a way, when you look at it, uh, Lot was looking at an impossible situation, you know, what can he do? And, and again, that, that, that by no means, shape, or form excuses him for what he did because when he acted that way, he was acting out of weakness and unbelief at that point. Thank you. Okay, just want to encourage you to send your questions in. Um, like Jimmy mentioned, we had, we had a, a few coming in, but we want to make sure we, that we um, get everything answered that needs to be answered today. Okay, next question. 1 Peter 3, 7, and 12. Within these verses, I see that Christians' prayers can be hindered through their lack of obedience to Christ. I assume that Peter is saying this not only in verse 7, but also in verse 12, since he is using this quote from Psalm 34 to exhort readers to holiness. I assume that on the righteous in 312a does not just refer to the righteousness that has been given to us through union with Christ, but to the one who is living in righteousness and obedience. 
With all this in mind, how can a Christian who is in Christ have hindered prayers since Christians' work as high priest and mediator never fails? How can our holiness affect whether or not God will hear our prayers? That's a great question. That's one I've had, too. So maybe somebody come up here and answer it. (laughs) Um, Why don't we put those two verses up there and just a caveat Ladies, you can't elbow your husband in the ribs as we read this first verse. Uh, Guys, you might want to duck a little bit. But it says, Husbands, likewise, dwell with them with understanding, giving honor to the wife. Uh, Literally means to value her like a precious jewel as to the weaker vessel and as being heirs together of the grace of life, that your prayers may not be hindered. So um, apparently there is some sense in which our prayers can be hindered if we don't uh, treat our wives in the right kind of way. And then 1 Peter 3.12 says, For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayers. But the face of the Lord is against those uh, who, who do evil. Um, and it's probably debatable in verse 12 if that's talking about, if that's saying um, you know, that God won't hear the prayers and won't answer the prayers necessarily of those uh, who aren't believers, or if it's talking about uh, Christians, maybe like Lot uh, as an example, who aren't really uh, walking with the Lord. So, um, but I think uh, the, the question kind of um, captures like the tension here, and it's kind of where do you draw the line? In a sense, you know, Christ is our mediator, He's our high priest. He gives us access to the Father, and that's really the only way we can pray. We pray based on his righteousness and his finished work and, and, and not our own. At the same time, um, these verse, I mean, verse 7 indicates clearly our prayers uh, can be hindered. And there's several other verses in the Bible. I mean, when you study prayer in Scripture, um, you know, there appears to be kind of some conditions for, uh, for answered prayer. I mean, there's, uh, there's probably 15 or 20 that you could uh, find in Scripture. You know, things like praying in faith, praying according to God's will, uh, obedience. I mean, there, there's like a list of things. So uh, h- how do you balance these two things uh, out? And uh, I guess this would be my stab at it. Uh, once again, uh, this is something I've wrestled with and Maybe uh, Philip and Lori will, will have a better answer. But, um, you know, I believe when we're uh, a Christian and we call uh, out to the Lord in the name of Jesus that God always hears our prayers, um, that we have access to him through Christ. Uh, but, um, the, you know, when God answers our prayers in one of three ways. He says yes, no, or wait. And he says, yeah, that's my will. The time's right. I'm going to do this. He says, no, this isn't in my will. Sometimes I think he tells us to wait because the time's not right or maybe because we're not right. And so sometimes I think when God doesn't answer our prayers, uh, it, I think that's part of the way that, that he disciplines us. And our prayers may be hindered because I think that can be on both sides. Sometimes our prayers are hindered on our side. Um, when, um, I know I've experienced this, I think you have too, if you're not really walking with the Lord, if you, if you know there's sin, there's disobedience in your life, it, it hinders us, I think, from even wanting to pray. It hinders us from praying with confidence. 
I, you know, I found, like for example, when I was running from the call to preach, I didn't want to pray because what I wanted to talk to God about and what he wanted to talk to me about were two entirely different things. So that may be uh, a sense in which your prayers are hindered. But on the God side, I mean, God's not hindered in anything. He has all power unless he chooses to, quote, hinder himself. Uh, Unless he chooses to say, okay, I'm going to work on you. I'm going to work on this in your life. I'm not going to do this yet until you're ready for it. So I think all of our prayers are going to the Father through Christ. What he does with them is what's best for us. And what's best for us, in some cases, may be to withhold a yes from us as, as part of him working to prepare us for that yes or to change us. Like I said, I think it can be part of God's discipline or just part of God, the, the, the sanctifying process in our lives. So you guys improve on that. Well... Just an example, and of course all examples are imperfect in some way, but you know, the Bible talks a lot about our relationship with Christ, you know, as as the bride. So when I think about in marriage, you know, if I've done something and Rusty's very upset with me, which, you know, that's hard enough to imagine, but But, you know, at that moment, if I try to, you know, whatever conversations I try to have with him, there's kind of a wedge between us at that point in the fact that until we kind of resolve the conflict that we have, what I've done, or, or, you know, the way that we're not communicating, we, we really can't deal with maybe some other issues or some other things or talk about some other things until we resolve that. And so... I sort of relate it like that, that when we're living in sin or when we've done something, our, our prayers can be hindered in the fact that we, the priority there is to get our relationship in the right position with Christ. So then, then when we pray, it's, it's without that blocking us. Yeah, I, I agree with, with that, and, and I think that's a, a great example. Um, and I go along with, with what both of you have said. Um, two or three things that, that, that I think apply to this, and, and Jimmy touched on them. To, to me, this is more, this is the, the distinction between, you know, justification and sanctification. Uh, we, we are God's children, and he disciplines us as a child. You know, that's very scriptural you know the lord disciplines his own and so if we are not right and 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 it's very relational like what Lori was talking about you know because if we're not right with one another and this is peter an apostle who's married you know talking about this and so he gives this this illustration or he gives this this uh, instruction you know and and so i'm sure he's he's speaking from experience you know that 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 make sure you're right with one another, and that that is also biblical. You know, if we're not right with with one another, then we're not right with God, and uh, and so God disciplines us, and and sanctification is a matter of being set free from the power of sin. You know, and being right with God, and and living in practical holiness, which He wants all of us to live in, and so. 
It's more a matter of, of uh, sanctification and discipline from a loving father uh, than, than, the, you know, than the fact that, that, that we are justified and made holy positionally in Christ. Maybe another way to think about it is if, if you witnessed a teenager disobeying their parents, mouthing off, that kind of thing, and then 10 minutes later they ask to borrow the car and have $20, and the parent says yes, what are you going to think about that parent? I mean, you're probably thinking they probably need to deal with the behavior before they start uh, granting these requests, and maybe that's kind of the, the, the idea of what this is getting at. Thank you that we have some coming in now, some questions coming in now, but we're going to go with the third question on our previous questions, and then we'll get into the ones that have been submitted this morning. Knowing what people say about cremation, is there any biblical evidence as to why one should not consider cremation? So I'm going to answer this, and I think this one's pretty easy, but if you've got a different position, you take the other side. If not, let's just answer it quickly and move on. I think the short answer is no. I think that's a gray area. Now, this is a big deal. I mean, some people in East Tennessee, it seems like, uh, you know, think if there's something big time wrong with cremation. But, but actually, I read something recently where, I don't remember the source of the study, but uh, there's more cremations than burials now. It's like 50 point some percent uh, people now get cremated, uh, 48 point some percent uh, of people uh, get uh, are, are buried. But, uh, you know, what the Bible teaches us is that we're body, soul, and spirit. There's a material, physical part of us. There's an immaterial, spiritual part of us. That what the nature of death is, is separation. Uh, the, the, the material and the immaterial uh, separate from one another. You know, our soul, our spirit doesn't die. The, the, the physical part of us um, start, stop, you know, our heart stops, all those kind of things. But uh, the Bible says to be absent with the bo- from the body is to be present with the Lord. We're, we're immortal, and in, in, we're going to exist somewhere uh, forever. And if you're a Christian, uh, your, your spirit, your soul, is going to go directly to heaven. Your, your body, whether it's uh, buried or whether it's cremated, is going to decay. It's just a question of the speed of it, basically, is what it boils down to. Now, the Bible also teaches us that the resurrection of Jesus uh, guarantees our own, uh, our resurrection. And so, uh, if you're in Christ, someday your resurrected, glorified, resurrected, glorified body is going to uh, join with your immortal soul. And that you're going to spend eternity in, in, in the presence of God. And, um, you know, to me... Whether you're buried or cremated, it doesn't really affect all of that. Now, I know there, there are people who have a conviction that, uh, I mean, the cremation's not right. If that's your conviction, you should be buried. But I don't think there's enough biblical evidence to impose that conviction on other people. I, I, I see it as more of a gray area. Um, you know, some people think it has to do with the handling of the body and uh, those kind of things, just in honoring that. But uh, like I said, I think it's a matter of personal conviction. It's not a clear-cut uh, biblical issue. And uh, you know, the main issues are that if we're in Christ, uh, that we to be absent of the bodies, to be present with the Lord. There is a resurrection. We have a hope in facing death. We have life in uh, Christ. And if you're not in Christ, it's bad either way. 
Any disagreement with that? All right, let's. What exactly is the Holy Trinity? <laughs> I've I've been doing most of the talking. I think you guys should. Uh... Well, the the Trinity, the Holy Trinity, is God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, as uh, Scripture. Uh, reveals to us who God is, and um, the the basic um, exp- ex- explanation about the Trinity is that God is one in essence, but three in person, and uh, and so uh, you know God, uh, the Father is God, the Son is God, the Holy Spirit is God. But the Father is not the Son, the Son is not the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit is not the Father. So, three in one, three persons, one God in essence. That is the, the, the Holy Trinity. Yeah, the reason we believe that, I mean, it's, it's hard to understand, but I mean, the Bible, from beginning to end, uh, articulates that there's only one God, but at the same time, even in the Old Testament, I mean, the Trinity's not necessarily fully fleshed out. We believe in the concept of progressive revelation. It's maybe not explicit, but it, but it is uh, implicit there in some ways in, in that, um, like if you go to Genesis 1, uh, the Bible talks about, I think it's maybe verse 26, 27, something like that, let us create man in, in, in our image, that seems to me to be hard to understand uh, apart from Trinitarian theology. If you go to Deuteronomy 6.4, which is the basic confession of faith in the Old Testament where it says, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. If you study that Hebrew word, uh, the word picture of it is like a cluster of grapes. It, it's not just a, a, a strict uh, oneness there. And um, you know, there's other passages, some of which are even quoted in the New Testament, like in Psalms, where David says, the Lord says unto uh, the Lord or unto my Lord, that kind of thing. Where you really have the Father speaking to the Son, or, or there's passages in, in, in Isaiah that uh, use some similar language to that. But then, so one God, but then and when you read the New Testament, the, the Father is called God. Uh, Jesus Christ, the Son of God. I mean, he's clearly uh, called God, uh, you know, verse after verse, really. John 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word uh, what was God. Uh, Philippians 2, uh, 5 through 11, that, that whole passage. Colossians 2, 9, that in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. Hebrews 1, 1 through 3, Thomas saying to him, my Lord and my God. In John uh, 20, 28, Jesus receiving that as worship. Uh, you got Jesus calling himself the, the I am uh, in the gospel of John or him saying I and the father are one or uh, he calling him my father, making himself equal with God, the scripture says. And, and we know that the Jews understood 
what he was saying because on most of these occasions, they tried to stone him because they thought he was committing blasphemy because they thought he was a man and he was claiming uh, to be God. And, and then with the Holy Spirit, you have in Acts 5, it says they lied to God, they lied to the Holy Spirit. You have um, in, in 1 Corinthians, their body being called the temple of God, the temple then being called the temple of the Holy Spirit, uh, that being used interchangeably. Uh, Jesus said I, in John, uh, I think it's John 14, that I'll send you another helper. And another in the Greek means another of the exact uh, same kind. So you have the Bible saying there's one God that's calling God Father, calling God uh, Son, calling God Spirit. And so that would be kind of the biblical reason that Christians have articulated uh, this theology that uh, Philip very clearly uh, enunciated, articulated for us. And practically, what does that mean to us? Well, the Father in, in saying salvation, well, in creation, uh, you've got the Father uh, working, and he says all things are th- created through Christ. Uh, but then in Genesis, it talks about the Spirit of God hovering over the face of the waters, those kind of things. In salvation, you have the Father choosing, the Son securing our redemption, the Holy Spirit uh, applying it to us. C.S. Lewis talked about in prayer how we're praying to the Father through uh, the, the mediation of the Son as the Holy Spirit who lives in us prompts us and, and, and enables us uh, to, to pray. Um, you know, one of the reasons that we're relational beings is because God exists in a relationship within himself. God doesn't need us. I mean, think about it this way. I heard somebody explain it this way recently. The Bible says God is love. But who did God love before he created us? He loved himself. Because within himself, there's relationship. The Father loves the Son. The Son loves the Spirit. The Spirit loves the Father. If you are something, I mean, that's just what's in you. That's always been within the nature of God because the nature of God is these three in, in, in one. And, and it's hard for us to understand it's hard for us to illustrate. Honestly, most of the illustrations that people use to illustrate the Trinity actually illustrate false versions uh, of, of the Trinity and, and not the actual biblical doctrine. I, I think the closest way to get to illustrating it, and I don't know if there's a perfect illustration for it, is, um, well, the Bible says that creation reflects the creator. And, and if it's true that we have a body, a soul, and a spirit, but yet we're one person, that's a reflection of our creator. Because you can't take any of that away and us be, actually be a human being. Or even if you think about the, on a bigger scale, the universe. We live in a three-dimensional universe. A three-in-one universe. Think about that. Why do we have a three-in-one uh, universe? Because we have a three-in-one God. And when you think about what makes up the universe, it's time, matter, and space. Well, what's time? Time's past, present, and future all in one, uh, space is um, length, height, and, and, and width or breadth. It's three in one. Uh, matter is solid, liquid, and gas. It's three in one. Why? Because our God, who so beautifully created everything, is three in one. And us and the entirety of the creation then becomes a reflection of that. 
Okay, we have lots of questions coming in now. This is very exciting. I'm going to uh, go to a question now that came from a, someone who's watching online. Um, and the question is, um, how can you give us some help on how to live with conservative views while it seems more and more intolerant in our world to do so? I think it's your turn, Lori. <laughs> well, I, I think it goes back to, I mean, my first, I guess my gut reaction is just because something's hard doesn't mean that we shouldn't do it. Um, and, and it is challenging. There are ways that I think you know, when I was growing up, especially here in East Tennessee, you just went to church and you said you loved Jesus and everybody was kind of on board with that. It's not that way anymore. And so what that means is, is that we have to, I think, not have shallow faith. You know, that's the main thing is that, that we have to know what we believe, why we believe it. It has to permeate every part of our life. Um, you know, we don't get to separate anymore the, you know, the sacred and the secular. Um, we have to see that all of our life is in, is in the sacred, that, that everything we do, everything we say, how we live, the choices we make. Um, because I think the inconsistency of that when we come to church and, and, you know, are here and then we go out and we're something else entirely, I think that that is what exposes Christ to criticism. And we are ambassadors of Christ. It's, it's our job to live out the gospel in every way. Now, does that mean we have to be perfect? No, because we can't. Um, but we, we have to also, I think, be willing to, to read, to learn, to not act like we know everything. Um, if we're asked a question and we don't know the answer, say, let me, let me get back to you on that. <laughs> let, me, let me go, and, and I don't know the answer to that, but let me study and find out or maybe seek some wise counsel and, and come back to you and have this conversation with you. I think that we used to could walk around and almost in the sense of that we're supposed to know everything, but, but that humility that we need to live in our culture is also essential um, because it needs to be real and it needs to be authentic. And the way that we do that is we just cultivate that in our own lives. And then the Bible says, I mean, spoiler alert, it says, you know, people will persecute you for my name's sake. And the Bible says that, you know, in this world, we're going to have trouble. We're going to have persecution. We're going to have these things. Jesus did. The disciples did. You know, the founders of the early church did. So we, we've kind of, to this point, almost gotten the free pass on some of that. And, and I think in a way that when... You don't have to be sharp, you get dull. So this is our time where we don't have the luxury of being dull anymore. We have to, you know, use God's word and, and the sharpness that comes from it and be prepared to, to, to face the challenges of culture. But we can. God promises that. He promises that he will give us what we need and that he'll be with us and he'll never leave us nor forsake us. I want to build on that question with another mm -hmm. question. Yeah. Um, 
we're told in Scripture not to judge. But at what point do we call sin, sin? Well, that, that's, one of the, that's one of the biggest myths about the Bible uh, that, that really that there is. Um, I mean, you know, when it, when it says in Matthew 7, one judge not that you, that you be not judged, the Greek word means condemn. Uh, there's other verses. There's one in First uh, Corinthians two where it says he is he is spiritual judges all things. It's a different Greek word. It means discerns. Mm-hmm. Um, where we, we, we we're we're all to judge in the sense of discerning between what's right and wrong. Mm-hmm. We're all told to speak the truth in love. Uh, truth. If there's truth, there's falsehood. If there's right, there there's wrong. And we're called to make those determinations. Now, it's, it's our motivation and then how we use that, I think, that makes it right or wrong. Are we condemning people? Are we, are we pushing people down? Are we being legalistic? Are we just trying to fault find, nitpick, find out whatever's wrong with them? Are we just trying to fix them? Are we pointing them to Jesus? Are we showing them the, the love of God? Are we... Pointing out sin in the sense of saying, okay, you know, this is the law of God. We have to repent to be made right with God. That, that's, a, that's a different thing dealing with, with issues or activities or behaviors. Uh, uh, that's different than condemning people or different than making it personal. That's different than calling people names and, and, and those kind of things. That kind of thing is, is always wrong. And if we're going to uh, affect the world... Um, I mean, we've got to speak the truth, but it, I think that has to come out of, like Lori's saying, really living it out where there's not hypocrisy. It has to come sometimes, I think, from being honest and admitting when we blow it. I mean, we've got to judge ourselves first. That's what Scripture teaches us. Uh, it, it, it teaches us uh, to show love, but, but to say we're not supposed to, to judge is, is just taking a Scripture out of context and blowing it up into... Uh, something that, that it's not, um, I mean, we're called to be tolerant in the sense of respecting people, accepting people, loving people, discussing things, maybe debating things. That's the old definition of tolerance. We, we affirm that. The new definition of, uh, of tolerance is just anything goes, uh, which we don't accept that. Although, one of the things that's ironic about this to me is uh, people who go around quoting don't judge, they judge. Everybody judges everything if, if, if we're honest uh, about it. And, and I think even uh, beyond that, people who go around uh, espousing tolerance, a lot of times I think there's a lot of inconsistency there because it depends on what you're... They, it, they want you to tolerate them. They don't want to necessarily tolerate you. Listen to me. To be true, to have true tolerance... Everybody needs to be able to express their viewpoint freely. That's part of what it means to be an American. And then let the best ideas win. And um, we may disagree. Hopefully we do it in, in, in the right way. But as Christians, we want to stand on the truth. Jesus is the only way to God. There's right, wrong. There's all those kind of things. But I think as, as Americans, we want to stand with people even that we disagree with in supporting the rights of freedom of speech, freedom of religion, those kind of things, because that's really the only way to have a free, open, and tolerant society. And so I think we kind of had to make some of those kind of distinctions.
Okay, um, this question uh, is, I knew someone at school who thinks abortion is okay, but because, because some girls will die if they continue with the pregnancy. I know this is wrong, but how do I discuss that with someone, or how do I defend my belief on that? I'll quote Dr. Lori Arwood. I'm going to think on that and get back to you on that one. <laughs> you want to answer that one, Lori? That, 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 that's, that's the only kind of answer that doesn't, it doesn't work here yes, you know, I know. very well. But, we don't get to use it up here. Uh, that, that's a very difficult question, mm -hmm. and uh, seriously, I think probably Lori could answer it better than me. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, that, that question's hard because when we throw in questions about abortion or stuff, we, there's always this emotional aspect to questions like that. Like, we're not really asking for, a lot of times, a, a logical, you know, reasonable, reason-based answer. We're looking for something that satisfies us emotionally. Like, this happened to me. It's an awful situation. How can I make it better? You know, it's, and so there's all this emotion involved. And we hate to tell someone, oh, well, you know, God in his word says, says this is not okay because, well, that's just not taking into consideration the emotion involved in this. And that's where the rub really is, is when we make abortion and, and issues like that, um, we, we only want to deal with them, and, and people only really want to deal with them on that emotional base level, where, you know, this, this is what will make me feel better, <laughs> or this is what I want to do, or this is what I feel like doing. So why should I not be able to do it? Um, and so there's, there's always the sense, those of us who are believers, we have to always balance the fact that there are a lot of things that aren't going to make us feel good about following Christ. And not everything that the Bible tells us to do or not do, is the, the main goal of that is not so that we feel good. But when that has become sort of the highest pursuit in our culture, then all of a sudden when we rub up against that, and say that some things are not okay based on just the simple fact that God says no or God says they're not okay, then that's where the rub really comes in. And so in a situation like this, it's, it's balancing the grace and the truth. Um, and it's not that we kind of mix in 50% grace and 50% truth and do it. it we, have to, we have to have 100% truth and 100% grace. It's, it's that we speak the truth in love, that we, we listen to the story. And, and part of those things in some of those questions is we always go, you know, in, in moral kind of issues like this, we always want to pull out the worst case scenario card. You know, there, I think there's a board game that's like <laughs> worst case scenario. And we want to say, well, you know, this person's going to die or this is going to happen if this doesn't happen. But in most cases, you're not at the worst case scenario. Um, the cases that it is the worst case scenario are actually very, very, very small percentages. Um, and so first of all, I would maybe ask some questions um, to that friend to see, well, are you one of these people that, you know, are going to die? 
And, and who's told you this? You know, is it that your parents are going to kill you? I mean, is this what you kind of, you know, kind of come up? Because, I mean, because that's very real. If you're a teenage girl, I mean, the thought of telling your parents something like that really is worst case scenario. So, so how do you work through the fears and the reality of the situation with someone while not compromising God's word and, and the truth of his word? Because, because if something's true, it's true. The situation, my emotions, the circumstance doesn't alter truth. It might make it a lot more uncomfortable and a lot less satisfying, but it still doesn't change it. And so we have to be mindful of balancing that. We have to balance that grace and that truth with people while walking through hard situations with them. And honestly, the easy answer is just to tell people, do whatever feels right. You know, follow your heart. <laughs> that's, that's honestly the easy way out. Because then I don't have to wrestle with anything. I don't have to think about anything. I don't have to, to deal with God and his word and, and those things if, if I just do what feels right. But we're not called to just do always what feels right. We're called to obey God and his word and to follow him um, even through hard places and hard situations. To piggyback on that, I'm just, mm-hmm. I'm going to jump in. And, and Philip, I think you can answer this part Wait, of this can, one. Can I just do a real quick follow-up before you do that? Just one, I mean, one thing we would say from a moral reasoning standpoint, I mean, if, if the mom or the baby, one of them is going to die, in, in that case, I mean, the mom would have a choice. The family would have a choice. Mm-hmm. Whose life are they going to try to save? Mm-hmm. That, that would be the actual exception to this. You take that out, and then you're at a, a moral choice mm-hmm. of, are we going to kill a baby? Mm-hmm. Uh, the, this is just piggybacks right on that, and it's a, it's a, I'm sure it's a quick answer, too. It's if, so if abortion is wrong to God and, and that person does it, and then ask for, for forgiveness. Are they forgiven? Yes. Absolutely. Absolutely. I knew that was a quick answer. <laughs> oh, my things have disappeared. Uh, sorry, I had that and, one. And, 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 and again, it's an emotional issue like Lori's talking to you, talking about, you know, because, and, and, and that's what happens when we have problems with you know, feeling like God has forgiven us over our sin. You know, it's an emotional issue because sometimes we can't, you, you, we grapple with it and we, we, we have to decide, can I forgive myself, you know, for what I've done? But, uh, you know, Scripture teaches that God throws it into the sea of forgetfulness and he remembers it against us, uh, not that he has a, you know, a, a bad memory or anything like that. The, the point is, he chooses not to hold that against us any longer. He chooses to wipe that off of, of, of uh, you know, the, the docket, so to speak, of our lives. He washes <laughs> us clean. He forgives us. It is forgiven. Absolutely. But I think we should also say, though, I mean, God forgives us. I mean, he instantaneously, instantaneously forgives sin. That does not remove the human consequences. And, and I think if, if, I mean, if there's someone that's contemplating an abortion, I, I would encourage you to think about that. I mean, really, the reason that someone would have an abortion is to not have to deal 
with some consequences that you don't really want to deal with. But there's a, a lot of experience in dealing with people, a lot of research that would show that there's a lot of long-term consequences to women who have abortions. And, and so, I mean, God forgives, but I, I think it, it's a lie from the enemy to say, okay, I can do this, and, and this, it's going to be better, this is going to take care of things. It, it may seem that way in the short term. It may make some things easier, but in the long term, I don't think it's necessarily going to play out that way. And I think that's something that, we, that, that needs to be kept in mind. Well, and I've had the experience of, you know, over 24 years working with several women and some men too who, who had abortions. You know, some were Christian, some were not, and, and then became a Christian after the fact. But I've never met and talked to anyone who did not have experience intense grief and pain and loss and regret. Um, and, and possibly even continue making some really bad choices in life because they didn't know how to deal with their loss and pain and decision and regret. So I've never, that, that's kind of another, I think, live the, the current age we live in is that we live a very disjointed, disconnected life. Like I can do this here or I can do this behind closed doors or I can do this or do this and then it, it doesn't connect to anything else. And that's not the way it works. <laughs> um, that is one of the great lies is that you can do this here, you can make this choice here and then it's done. It's, it's in a container. It's, it's never going to be present anywhere else in your life or in your heart, in your soul. And that is not true. Um, we don't make decisions that, that don't have those connections to other parts of our lives. Even if we think we can keep something locked tight in a box, buried somewhere in the woods, that's not true. And we all know that. And, e and even if we think we're living and we've done that, then we're doing other things somewhere to try to keep that box buried somewhere. And so I've, I've never talked with anyone just on a personal level that didn't have those regrets. Regardless of the circumstance of how the pregnancy came to be, there is still a sense of that. Um, and, and I think the people that say no, and, and even now, I mean, there's this whole movement where you see people getting up and celebrating, you know, I think even I heard that Hallmark has like congratulations on your abortion greeting cards now, or I hope I didn't like just I think it's Hallmark. <laughs> don't send letters if you work at Hallmark. Um, yes, don't go with me on that. But but I mean, so we've got that movement. But to me, that's just a you know how sometimes when people know something's wrong and they try really hard. I know one time, Abby had the flu and she didn't want to have the flu, so she was bouncing around the house like, hey, hey, everything's great, and I'm like you don't feel well, do you? Because she didn't want to have the flu, and so she was thinking, okay, if I just act peppy enough or happy enough, I'll make the flu go away. <laughs> and, and that's sometimes how we do with, our, with, with things like that in our lives is we try really hard to overcompensate that it's all okay 
But to me, that's just another kind of tactic that's used and can be successful for a while, but it always catch up, catches up with us. Yeah, and if you're either struggling with the after effects of this or wrestling with this, I'd encourage you to reach out to Lori. If you're online, don't know how to get in touch with her. Just send a message to the church, and uh, we can get you in touch with her. <clears throat> okay. Uh, la- clearly, this subject is, is a subject that's on a lot of people's minds and is important, the subject that we're on right now. And I have one more question with that subject. Um, if a, what if a woman is raped? Is it still okay for an abortion? Um, curious on your view on that as a panel. I think we would all have the same view that that's, while that's an awful situation, mm-hmm. that the only way that you can morally justify taking a life is to save another life. And so, um, I mean, we would not affirm as a church that, that, that abortion is right in, in that scenario. I mean, if, certainly if the woman felt like she needed to put the child up for adoption or that kind of thing, that uh, would certainly think that that would be a, a very righteous choice. And, you know, her heart would go out to someone uh, like that, like I said, no, it's, I mean, that's awful, it's inexcusable uh, for someone to do that to another person, but what this boils down to is, um, is, is that a fetus, or is it a living human being, uh, medical, I think science would show, it's a living human being that can experience pain uh, from the moment of conception, and, and biblically, you know, the, the scripture would certainly uh, affirm that and uh, believe it, it would have a soul and the child's not done anything wrong. Okay. Uh, next question. I am a single parent who strives to teach my child how to live a godly life um, and help my child in dealing with their other parent who doesn't necessarily choose to, to do the same thing. How do I help my child uh, with their sadness, anger, and resentment towards their other parent? Is there scripture references that I can uh, help my child learn, refer my child to, and, and you know, daily try to instill that? How, how do I help my child? I guess that's me. <laughs> There's a reason we had a counselor up here. <laughs> um, that situation is, is common. Um, it's hard, you know, when any time that you have certain, you know, rules or, or a way that you want to raise your children. And then I think some of us don't realize when, when there is, is divorce or, or families that are dealing with that and how even, you know, when the child is with the other parent, there may be a completely different philosophy of parenting, of rules, of bedtimes, of, I mean, it's from the most minute, insignificant things all the way up to the big things. And I think that is such a hard situation to find yourself in because, in you know, especially for like the men in the room, I mean, there's a part of you that's like, you wanna fix whatever it is, right? You just wanna fix it. Well, this is one of those situations that, that technically you really can't fix. Um, and, and we want to. We want to give some nice, easy, pat answers and say, just do this, this, and this, and then it'll all be okay. And so this is one of those situations that falls into the place that is not that. I say that, you know, when 
you you have the children with you. You do your best to raise them in a in a godly, Christ-centered home, and also you teach them the value of praying for people who don't know Jesus and who possibly you know are not going to do things the way Jesus wants us to do things. And so you're, you're teaching them to have a heart of compassion, a heart of grace, to live kind of in a gospel-centered mindset. Because in this case, it's the other parent, but all throughout life, it's going to be somebody. It's going to be extended family or coworkers or, or, or siblings or, or whoever. And um, you also have open conversations with your kids. I mean... While, you know, there, the scripture about honoring your parents. Um, how do you honor someone when you don't agree with how they're living or what they're doing? That's hard stuff, right? But that doesn't negate the fact that, that God said, honor your father and mother. Because that, that's really your part of the equation. You, you can honor someone and not agree with the choices they're making, with what they're doing, pray for them, um, have that communication with your child. You know, say, say, this is what God's word says about this issue. Because, you know, a lot of times we want to put the kid in the middle of something and kind of pull them back and forth. Because I've heard this from the parent's perspective, but I've also heard it from the child's perspective. And, and they don't like being put in the middle where they're constantly having to say, you know, being pulled from one parent to the next and feeling like they're always caught in the middle of that. And so you have to teach them when something like that comes up, you know, here's what God's word says, here's this, and, and try to take some of the emotion out of it or, you know, the, the tendency that we have to kind of say, well, that's just, you know, so-and-so and they're going to do these horrible things and, you know, and, and it's, it's hard not to do that. But, but if we're really trying to take care of their heart, that's what's most important. And, and you teach them to pray for that parent and to, to be able to discern, just develop that discernment on, on what God's Word says and, and, and how we are supposed to live while also giving them the freedom to, to talk to you about it, to share what's going on, to say that this makes me sad or this hurts me or this makes me angry and, and talk through them you know, and, and almost kind of take the high road as the parent not to put them in the middle of that um, and those disagreements. I would just, I mean, that's um, very difficult. I, I would say that our heart goes out to this person that asks this question um, and to others that are in the same boat. And um, we feel for you, you know, Parenting is one of the hardest things that anybody can do. Um, and in this kind of situation, it's, I can see that it's very difficult. So our heart goes out to you. Um, but on one level, you know, um, it, it's kind of like receiving Jesus Christ and following him. It's, in one way of looking at it, it's the simplest thing that someone can do. That doesn't mean it's easy. It can be very hard following Jesus. You know, this kind of goes back to uh, one of our other questions. And, and uh, 
you know, we, you know, as brothers and sisters of Christ, we, we need to get off the fence and, and, and live for him and, and make that decision. But it, it is a very simple thing. Uh, so in one, in one way, uh, I would just encourage, you know, as far as sharing scripture and talking to that child, uh, you know, do that in the same simple way that, that we live the rest of this difficult life, and that is trust in the Lord, depend on Him, look to Him for His grace, because we need His grace for every act of obedience, everything we do, we need Him. So live and walk in, uh, in submissive dependence on the only one who can get you through every decision that you make uh, and, and, you know, do that with your child, uh, share with them the love of Christ, share with them the, the comfort of the Lord. You know, God is the God of all comfort. The fact that he's there with you uh, every moment of every day, he loves you with an unconditional fiery love that, that uh, you know, doesn't depend on you, but depends on his great love that's infinite um, you know, and just um, by God's grace, uh, you know, like all of us, in a simple way, um, that would be my encouragement that, that, that you live with that situation uh, as you're doing all those things that, that Lori talked about. Okay, I think we're, we're about out of time. There's uh, something we're going to do to end the service. But um, I want to thank everyone for submitting the questions. I'm sorry for the ones that we didn't get to. Robin said, somebody asked a question about how do I not worry. Um, I would kind of refer you back to the sermon series that we did. It's on our website, app, YouTube, the whole thing that we did in December called Stressless. Uh, where we talked about uh, how to live at peace uh, kind of get a more amplified answer. Is there a particular version of the Bible that you prefer? If so, why? Is there one you would avoid? If so, why? Can I just say up front that after that baptism, I think I'd rather be preaching than answering questions. <laughs> can, I, can, I just, can I just be honest about that? Uh, so... Um, and have to try to focus in a little bit here. Um, okay, so a uh, couple things, uh, maybe in background on this. Um, the Old Testament written in Hebrew, New Testament's written in Greek, um, which we believe in the original autographs, original manuscripts, it's the inspired and inerrant, infallible Word of God, that there's uh, you know, many copies that were passed down through the years. The Bible is far and away the best uh, preserved and most attested to book in ancient literature. So uh, we can have uh, very, very strong confidence that what we have today is what was originally given. And then these Greek Hebrew copies as they're passed down and, you know, eventually they're translated into a variety of languages, including English. So that's a way quick, way oversimplified uh, version of how we got the Bible. Um, as far as like a version of the Bible, prefer that kind of... Um, 
I don't think that's really the best way to answer the question. So I'm kind of going to give you what your options are on this. First of all, we, we would say, you know, contrary to a lot of people in um, East Tennessee, that like the Bible is not the King James version of the Bible. Okay. Uh, King James is a fine translation if you want to use it. Uh, that's awesome, but it's not the Bible. Particularly when people say, you know, we're a 1611 King James version of the Bible church. Can I say this without any fear of contradiction, that there is not a 1611 King James version Bible of the church anywhere around uh, because you would have to have a translation of that to actually even be able to read it. The, the English is so different. I mean, just you, you can look it up. So basically, when it comes to Bible translations, uh, there's three types of translations, so to speak. First, there's a paraphrase, which actually technically isn't a translation. This would be like the living Bible. The message is probably somewhere in between a translation and a paraphrase. There's some other translations that are, that are paraphrases that are kind of maybe along those lines. Um, honestly, my, rec my pastoral recommendation would be that with something like that, I would use it as more like a commentary than actually read it like the Bible because it's not actually the Bible because it's not actually a translation of the Word of God. It's a paraphrase. They can be helpful. They can be valuable. They can give you understanding, but it's not per se the Word of God in my opinion. Then there's, but there's two basic, two types of translations. There's what's called dynamic equivalence translations, and there's formal equivalence translations. A dynamic equivalence translation is more of a phrase-by-phrase -phrase kind of translation. It's translating the thoughts. I mean, basically, I mean, every decent Bible translation is trying to balance two things. It's trying to balance accuracy and readability, a dynamic equivalence is going to focus a little bit more. I mean, they're still trying to be accurate, but it's going to focus a little bit more on the re readability. Probably the prime example of this kind of a translation would be the NIV. Um, a formal equivalence translation is a word-by-word -word, uh, translation. It's not literal, uh, but it's more literal. Um, it, it's, it's, you know, word by word, it's, it, the focus is there on accuracy and sure it's trying to be readable, but if it's going to err on one side, it's going to err on, on the side of, um, of the accuracy. Uh, New American Standard, King James, New King James would be, uh, some prime examples of that type of translation. I don't think either one is wrong. My preference is the more formal equivalence kind of translation, the, the more word-by-word -word, uh, kind of translation. I preach out of the New King James because I think it's a good translation. Uh, it doesn't have the these and the thous and all that of the King James. Uh, you know, ESV would be another example of that. New Living Translation, which I actually like, would be maybe another example of the dynamic equivalence uh, kind of translation. So... Um, we're not going to tell you what Bible to use at, at, at True Life. Uh, don't use the New World Translation, which is the Jehovah's Witness Bible, which basically they just took it and changed what they didn't like. You, you got to watch out uh, for that kind of stuff. But, uh, I mean, my personal recommendation would be a formal equivalence kind of uh, translation. But basically, the one you'll read and feel like you can understand, uh, that'd be my probably biggest recommendation for you is just to, uh, to, to read it and, uh, I don't know, you, you guys 
have a particular preference that you'd want to share? Any different thought? I think I, I like the New King James, but what has been helpful for me the last couple of years, I, I'm always doing just a read through the Bible in a year kind of thing on you version. And sometimes I, I think what's been helpful is like the New Living Translation or whatever. I will set it on that so that, because sometimes, you know, if you're hearing it in the way you heard it when you were a kid, you just sort of start filling in the blanks, and then at some point you veg out, and then, you know, you kind of realize, oh, okay, I, I'm like two chapters down here, but I have no idea what I just read. And so I found it helpful, you know, kind of as part of my daily reading is maybe to read in a different version because things will jump out at you differently, um, and as long as they're still you know, they meet those standards Jimmy was talking about. Sometimes things will catch you afresh and anew. Even, in, you know, I've been a Christian since I'm five years old, and I did Bible drill and all that kind of stuff. And so I find that sometimes just hearing things said in a little bit different way just gives me that freshness to Scripture. So, I mean, that would just be something that maybe would, would help if, you know, it just in your personal reading time. Yeah, I agree with both of these uh for a number of years, I've been using the ESV, and basically that was just an attempt to, uh, um, it is one of the more uh, formal translations, and so I agree with that, uh, but, but, uh, but it that takes out the these and thous and makes it easier for, for people to understand, and particularly uh, in a newer day that we, we're living in today, that seems to be more important. I would definitely agree with what Jimmy said, that Find a Bible that you can understand, feel comfortable with, and read it. Okay. Um, sometimes people um, who, who learn, some people, sometimes people struggle uh, when they hear about Jesus maybe uh, later in life, and they've been, they've been raised in a particular um, tradition or religion, um, and, and so the, the struggle comes when, they, they feel like they're abandoning their old, uh, but really they've come to know Christ. And how can you help people? How can we help someone understand that it's about the relationship and just um, that they're not abandoning, you know, they're, they're going to something. It's about a personal relationship. It's about accepting Christ um, and not abandoning their old religion. Well, I, I think sometimes, I mean, I'm thinking of a lady in our church in Maryland who... Um, probably in her 60s and her 70s when she became a Christian, but she was a lifelong Catholic. And, um, I mean, some of the struggle was when she got baptized, I think, you know, kind of felt like to her family that they were, that she's kind of turning her back, her back on them or they kind of rejected her. Or sometimes if you go in a different direction, I mean, I, I've met people who, uh, in, in this kind of scenario, who their parents are like, well, you know, what's wrong with what we taught you or as you uh, abandoning us or, or that kind of thing. And um, I, I think at the end of the day, it boils uh, down to, uh, well, a couple of things. Jesus said that he came to set a you know, father, uh, you know, parents against children. And, you know, that passage in Matthew chapter 10 uh, didn't come to bring peace, but a sword. And the gospel divides that, that's the reality. Jesus divides. 
Uh, I mean, he didn't really, in a sense, come to do that. That's just the byproduct. I mean, when you say, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, no one comes to the Father except through me, when you go around making claims like I rose from the dead and, and, and that kind of thing, it's not really the kind of thing you can be on the fence about. And so uh, I, I think at some point we just have to decide if, uh, if Jesus is, is worth that, we have to recognize that, that we're going to experience uh, some persecution. And I, I think at the end of the day, when we see that, that it is a relationship, it's not a religion, when we see that it's about the person and work of Christ, and, it, and if Jesus, if, if, if we see salvation as Jesus being our ultimate treasure and, and, and not just a fire insurance policy or that kind of thing, I think that begins to, to um, change everything. I think when we see just the greatness and the glory and the grace and the love of Christ, and, and, and we find that uh, compelling, that if, if people walk away from us or, you know, we, we can lay some earthly things down because we see his worthiness. How do you honor thy mother and father if you have no relationship with them by choice of your own because they continue to hurt you? Um, I actually have worked with a few people, ironically, this past year where they're really struggling with that as adults, where their, their parents aren't really believers and and they they really struggle with this whole concept of honoring thy father and mother when you know they they have such a damaged relationship in reality with them and and it's helpful I think to just think about it you know there's there's kind of a couple of things in scripture when it talks about parents and children about honor thy father and mother and then children obey your parents and the lord for this is right and, and, you know, we're, the, the obedience command basically at some point ends. You know, like, I, unfortunately, no. Fortunately, I live next door to my parents. And, and there are times when I still do something my dad hates. I pull out and drive through our yard. And, you know, my dad's like, quit driving through your yard. And, and you know, I'm kind of like, you know. <laughs> And so, I mean, it's a, it's a friendly joke. I'm not being ugly about it. But, um, and so, you, at, at some point, the obedience factor, I mean, when, when, you know, I got married, became an adult, I don't technically have to now obey my parents and do everything they say. Um, but the, the fact of honoring them never changes. And, and honoring, it, it's, it's almost akin to forgiveness, Forgiveness doesn't depend on the other person coming to you and asking, you know, and saying they're sorry and asking for you to forgive them. Uh, forgiveness um, is, that's not what it's about. Um, forgiveness is something that, that we choose to do in our heart and, and that basically releases us then um, from that other person. And, and honoring is a little bit the same way. We can honor our parents and, and not agree with what they do with knowing that possibly we need to have certain boundaries in place um, if, if there's unhealth there or there's things that, that are not right. Um, ultimately, our ultimate allegiance is to God and his word. 
So if there are things that they, they do that, that go against God's word or that are, that are just damaging and hurtful, we don't have to participate in that with them. We can choose to still love them, to pray for them, to still have um, an air of where, yes, we may need to confront things, but when we confront those things, we do that in a respectful way or, or in a way where we don't compromise truth, but we don't have to be mean about it. Um, and, and just realize that, that the honoring part really just depends on our heart attitude. It's an internal attitude, but it, we need to know what that means, but also more importantly, what that doesn't mean, which, you know, it doesn't mean that we allow kind of that unhealth and, or those things that are not okay to be okay just because they're our mom and dad. Okay, this is a two-part question. <clears throat> Do any of you believe in aliens? And if so, does that change or affect your view about creation? <laughs> well, let's just go down the line. I don't. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> is this your question, Dwayne? <laughs> Okay, if you want to call angels aliens, I believe in angels. Yeah. I'll rest my case. Yes. <laughs> Excuse me, our format is... that like A plus B equals C? <laughs> this is not your courtroom, Dwayne. <laughs> yeah, we're yeah, going to be in contempt. of court, put something in the offering box as you leave. <laughs> Uh, no, I don't. Um, I mean, no. <laughs> Philip? I'm the same, no. Okay. What was the second part of it? And if so, does that change or affect your view about creation? If I, if I did believe in, in aliens, it still wouldn't uh, change my view about creation. Okay. What books of the Bible would speak to one about addiction? What, what are the Bible? What books of the Bible or Scripture? Well, I mean, I think that addiction is a complicated issue, first of all. But, I mean, ultimately, and we had a sermon, I think. We did a thing on addiction last year sometime or the year before um, where we kind of really looked at that in depth. But... In addiction, kind of some roots of addiction, you know, addiction being rooted in pain. Well, the Bible talks a lot about pain and, and things like that. Um, and another part of addiction, I think, is that, that it, is, it is a form kind of our modern day, it's a modern day form of idolatry um, where we are looking to something other than God to deal with or satisfy or make sense of or cope with some of the horrible things or just the stresses of life or fill in the blank things. Um, so I think the Bible speaks a lot to idolatry. It speaks a lot to, um, to those issues all throughout the, the Old Testament, you know, in more specific ways of people actually had actual idols up and then, you know, things kind of switch in the New Testament where it still talks about idolatry, but it talks more about the condition of our heart 
and the things in our heart we set up. You know, we probably don't set up little idols on our mantles anymore, but, but we set them up in our hearts all the time. And, you know, for some of us, it, it might be shopping. For some of us, it might be alcohol. You know, fill in the blank. Anything can become an idol, even good things. You know, our families, our, our work, um, our children, and so the Bible speaks to that, that, you know, that we are to love God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength, and, and to love others, you know, as we love ourselves. And, and any time that we are kind of putting anything or any person um, in the place of God to deal with whatever life has for us, you know, and that can come, become an addiction. Um, so that's probably, in a nutshell, the answer to that. Lori, why don't you maybe kind of take it a step farther and Mm -hmm. like if someone's wanting, you know, freedom Mm -hmm. from addiction Mm -hmm. and I mean, like you said, that's very complicated, but if you're just going to boil it down to a a few biblical keys, what would you say to somebody? Well, I, I think there has to be truth. There has to be an ownership of, hey, there's a problem here, (laughs) um, there is something, you know, that, that I am doing that um, has, has taken on that role. So, th- so there has to be an acknowledgement of that, you know, because as long as somebody's in denial, you, you don't really deal with addiction when you're, when you're not self-aware, when you're in denial about it. Um, so part of that, part of it's confession. Um, part of it is um, seeking help, seeking accountability, um, and, and, and putting in place, there has to be change in, in the way that life is structured. And so it, there's things that have to happen in all of those areas. And, and obviously, you know, if you're going to do something hard, then knowing that you have Christ, knowing that you have the power of the Holy Spirit working in you and through you to do something hard always puts you at an advantage. Um, and so there are people who love Jesus who have addictions. And, um, but those people also have a resource available to them that people who don't have Jesus don't have. So first of all, you know, sometimes part of that ownership and that truth and, and um, is, is figuring out where you are with Jesus um, and then beginning to deal with the hard road of, of those other things. Um, and, and I think one reason why accountability is so important, I mean, we've talked about that a little bit, that when you're struggling with an addiction, basically neurobiologically, you know, that impulse center of the brain sort of kind of turns off. <laughs> and, and so usually it takes kind of being what we call clean or being in recovery and not using for about two years for that to fully kind of wake up again. So during that time, you need people that are going to help you <laughs> with truth, with impulse control, with accountability, with um, those things that maybe you're at a little bit of a disadvantage with because of the effects of what those choices have done, not only you know to your body, to your mind, <laughs> but to your mind, to your spirit, you need, you need all the help you can get. So I, I think it's, it, it's saying that, you know, we have to also have an air of humility. We have to lay down our pride um, 
to be able to deal with it too because you know we don't want people to know but really in that not wanting people to know we're actually keeping ourselves locked in where we are okay next question if your whole family has already gotten saved how do you know when you will take the Lord in your life Can you repeat that? If your whole family has already gotten saved, how do you know when you will take the Lord in your life? How do you know when you'll get saved? I think that's kind of up to you. <laughs> um, in a way, I don't know. Philip, you want to speak to that? Well, yeah, I... I as, as far as your concern, whoever's asking this question, and there may be others that identify with this person, um, the question is, do you believe? Uh, you know, do you believe God's Word? Do you believe that God loved you enough to send His Son, Jesus, so that you didn't have to pay for your sins, that you could be forgiven for your sins, that He paid the, the price on the cross do you believe that? And do you believe that, uh, you know, as Scripture says, Romans 10, 9, that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus, that is, surrender to Him as your Lord, your master, owner, king, your ruler, and if you believe, uh, if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you, you will be saved. So, do you believe that? Do you believe that if you cry out to, to the Lord Jesus, that based on his finished work on the cross, that he will save you? And if you believe that, you can receive Jesus today. I mean, the scripture says, behold, now is the accepted time. Behold, today is the day of salvation. And we all would encourage you, you know, to, to receive Jesus to surrender to him as your personal Lord and Savior to give your life to him it can be today for you yeah what, what I think is if you're asking that question that's a sign in and of itself that the Spirit of God is at work in 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 your life and that uh, today could be the day of salvation for you I mean you know, no one comes to the Father unless he's drawn by the, by the Spirit is what the, what the Scripture teaches us. But uh, I, I think if you're coming to church and you're asking a question like that, the Spirit of God is, is drawing you. And, and like uh, Pastor Phillips said, if God's Spirit's working in your heart and he's convicting you of your sins and he's giving you the faith to believe, I mean, if you repent toward God and place your faith in Jesus as your Lord and Savior... Um, I mean, that's what brings about salvation. And it really doesn't have anything to do with your family. It's, it's a personal encounter between you and the, and the God of the universe uh, that he's designed to happen in, in your life. And that's why you're thinking this way. Okay, next question. We know the birth and resurrection of Christ, but what about before he became a man? Is there anywhere that talks about Jesus' childhood in the Bible? Luke chapter 2, 
Um, well, I guess there, there's a little bit in, uh, there, there's Matthew too. Uh, you know, Jesus wasn't really just like a newborn baby when the Magi came to visit him and worship him. Um, don't know exactly the amount of time that it transpired, but, uh, you know, then they, they fled to Egypt and then came back uh, in, in, into Nazareth. And then uh, there's also some, in Luke chapter 1, you know, when they've taken him to the temple and those kind of things. But then it, then it really fast forwards ahead to when Jesus is 12 and uh, they're, they're going uh, up to the temple and Jesus gets left behind because uh, he's asking questions and he's talking to the religious leaders. And there's kind of this summary statement where it says that he grew in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. And then you pretty much, it pretty much skips ahead until he's around 30 and his ministry begins. And there's the baptism of John the Baptist where his father's publicly uh, affirming him as, as the son of God and, and, and as the, the Messiah. So uh, the thing you have to remember uh, about the, the Gospels is sometimes we call them the biographies of Jesus and maybe that word communicates, but that's not technically really what they are. Um, I mean, it's not designed to be the story uh, of, of his life. It's designed to reveal who he is and why he came. And obviously, the, the, even in space and words, uh, it's weighted toward the last week of his life because the ultimate point of the Gospels is to show us that Jesus is the Son of God. He's the Savior of the world, that he came to die for us. He rose from the dead, and if we'll repent and trust him, He'll uh, forgive us of our sins and, and, and give us new life. That's ultimately the point of the Gospels. And so, uh, you know, the Holy Spirit led the writers to put specific things in there to um, show us what we needed to know, you know, to know God and to live a godly life. That's the, the, the ultimate purpose of Scripture. So, uh, you know, there's a lot of unanswered questions, I think, about his, his childhood. I mean, there's a, a lot of, I mean, could you imagine, like, being one of Jesus' brothers and sisters? And, you know, if you've ever had the, um, like, we kind of joked in our family that, like, Molly's the perfect kid. Uh, I mean, that was, like, the reality there, you know. He never did anything wrong. And, like, you know, I, I don't know what that means. I don't know if that means his brothers beat him up, and, uh, you know, I, I don't know. I mean, he, he was truly human, but the, the Bible just doesn't give us a lot of detail. A piggyback question on that is, was Jesus born on December 25th? <laughs> Who knows? Who knows? Okay, well, they didn't know one. Okay, um, next question. Do you believe when, as a Christian, do you believe when you die that you go straight to heaven? Why or why not? Well, uh, yes, you do, in the sense that uh, Jesus said to be, or Paul said, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And uh, Scripture talks about, you know, in Luke, it talks about uh, being in Abraham's bosom, being in paradise. And, and, and so, uh, for the Christian, when we die, our spirit goes to be with the Lord in paradise and of course, you know, then you can get into uh, more, you know, about there are other questions that go with that, you know, eschatology, that the last days, the end times. And, um, you know, there's a there's the resurrection where our spirit is reunited with our body, you know, and, and we're 
but we get a glorified body, and those, uh, you know, I, I, I lean toward a, a pre-trib rapture where we are called up together with the Lord, and and then there, and then there's the tribulation, and after that, you know, the rest of it. So, uh, but the basic question, the basic answer is yes. When a when a Christian dies, uh, we go to be with the Lord. We go to be in paradise, heaven. How do you know that you are saved, even while you while you believe in Christ and love Him? How do you know? Well, <clears throat> I mean, theologically, there's there's a couple of things that I think sometimes people get confused that we have to hold in the right balance or the right understanding. Every true believer in Christ is eternally secure, and. That's because the Bible says we're sealed by the Holy Spirit until the day of redemption. It's because he chose us. It's because his, it's his work. It's not our works. I mean, the Bible says we're perfected forever by the blood of Christ. Uh, the Bible says that uh, Jesus puts us in the Father's hand and no one can pluck us out of the Father's hand. It's because we're saved completely by grace. We're kept by grace. It's all ultimately the, the work of God. I mean, Romans chapter 8 talks about how he, he, he called us, and those that he called, he justified, and those that he justified, those that he glorified. And, and the way it's worded in the Greek, it's like it's already as good as done. It's already um, accomplished in, in a sense. We're just not experienced yet because it's, it's the God's plan will be perfectly completed. So security is a reality. Assurance can be up and down, can come and go. Um, there's been times in my life where I've doubted my salvation. And, 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 the, and the reality is you can be saved and know it. You can be saved and unsure of it. You can be unsaved and know it. Or you can be unsaved and think that you are. And so, any of those are possibilities in, in, in a spiritual sense. And, and so, I, I think, um, you, you know, security is an objective reality. Assurance is more subjective. The hope would be is that we're both secure in Christ because we're genuinely saved, and then we have a confidence or an assurance of that salvation because if we are saved and but are continually doubting it, I don't think we're really uh, comprehending and experiencing the grace of God like he wants us to. And so it's going to hinder our joy. It's going to hinder our, our spiritual growth. That, that still leads back to the question, though, of how do we have uh, assurance? And I think that question is answered wrongly a lot. Uh, sometimes people say, well, did you pray a prayer? Did you walk an aisle? Uh, did, did you uh, join a church? Uh, you know, do you believe? And, 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 and some of those kind of things. Whereas the Bible actually gives a, a different answer. Everything that I'm going to say is not from 1 John, but actually if you want to really know the answer to this, probably the easiest way is to read the book of 1 John because 1 John gives several characteristics of a genuine believer, some of which would include... Uh, walking in the light instead of the darkness, uh, you know, being honest about our sins, um, 
looking to Jesus and his blood alone, uh, looking completely, uh, really what makes you a Christian is if you have no confidence in your own flesh, you know you're a sinner, there's nothing you can do to save yourself, and you're relying on uh, Jesus and his finished work on the cross and, and him and that alone for your salvation. That, that's ultimately uh, what makes you a, a, a Christian. But the Bible teaches us that if we're really saved, that we, we, we see Jesus in a biblical way, we don't, just don't have our own version of him, that we have the assurance of the Holy Spirit in, in our hearts, that there's obedience there, that, that there's a change in our life, that there's love for God and, and, and for other people. Um, you know, the Bible tells us that... Um, God disciplines those that he loves, that there's a conviction of sin, that um, if, if, you know, sinning, making a mistake is not a sign that you're not a Christian. But if, if you can sin and it not bother you, that's a sign that you're not a Christian. If you can persist in sin and not experience God's discipline in your life, that's a sign that you're not a Christian. The Bible says if anyone's in Christ, he's a new creation. So there's change there. Jesus talked about we're known by our fruits. There's going to be fruit there. That doesn't mean it's going to be the same as everybody else's. It doesn't mean it's always going to be the same in our lives. It doesn't mean there's not going to be some up and down in our spiritual journey. But at the root of it, we're looking to Jesus, the Holy Spirit's present in our lives. He's working in us, and sometimes that's to encourage us, teach us, grow us. Sometimes that's to convict us and, and, and bring us back. Um, you know, there's going to be ups and downs, but it's that we're rooted in, that we're secure in Christ, that, that we're looking to him and he's working, and he is, however gradual it may be, or however, you know, it may be three steps forward, two steps back sometimes, that, that we are experiencing him and experiencing him changing us in, in our lives. And, and, and so just because you made a profession of faith uh, doesn't mean that you're a Christian. Same time, just because you have some doubts about whether or not you're a Christian uh, doesn't mean you're not a Christian. Um, you know, I, maybe sometimes in our lives it's good for us to question ourselves. Uh, you know, the Bible tells us to test ourselves as to whether or not we're in the faith. Sometimes we need to question ourselves, I think, to come to the place of saying, you know, it's not me. All I have, all I am is Jesus. Come back to him. And that's when you know that you're saved. Is every act of sin forgivable? For example, abortion. Yeah, we talked about this in the first service. So, Laura, you want to talk about that again? I mean, the short answer is, is yes. I mean, we're, we can be forgiven for anything. I mean, that's, that's the... I tell people all the time because I'll have people come in and they'll be like, but I've done this, but I've done this, or, or my life's a mess, you know. And I'm like, there, you know, God is so big, you know, there is no mess we can make that he can't clean up. <laughs> um, now, it, it sometimes takes us working with him, but, but forgiveness, I mean, the Bible says, you know, that if, if we ask, then, then we can be forgiven. Now, it might take, some time after that to deal with the natural consequences of sin or to deal with some practical things of cleaning up that mess. 
or to learning how to deal with things in different ways. But, but yes, I mean, that, that's definitely something you can be forgiven. Do you have to be baptized to be able to get to heaven? So if you want to answer that one. The, the basic answer is no, you don't. And the primary example of that is the thief on the cross uh, because Jesus looked, at, you know, looked over at him and, say, and said to him, today you will be with me in paradise. Now, uh, practically speaking, you know, what person who truly puts their faith and trust in Jesus Christ, uh, truly repents of, you know, sin and puts their faith and trust in him and says, I want you to be Lord and King and Master of my life, you know, and save me of my sins. I want to follow you. What true believer would say all those things and then say, I'm not going to be baptized, there's a problem there, uh, because if we if we if we do trust in Him and surrender to Him as Lord and Savior of our lives, then part of that fellowship, which is really what uh, you know being saved is all about, we're disciples of Jesus Christ. The, the word disciple is a follower, a student uh, of of the one who's teaching us, and that's Jesus. So if we're going to follow Him. The first act of public obedience in following him is to be baptized. So baptism is very, very important, uh, both uh, in obedience to Christ, but also psychologically, emotionally, you know, in identifying with Christ, saying, I'm going to follow him. I'm his. I belong to Jesus now. You know, before I was my own person. I was following the ways of the world. I was following the devil. You know, I belong to him or whatever, but now I belong to Jesus. And so that, that's what baptism does. That's what it says in a public way. So uh, baptism doesn't save us. Uh, you don't, you know, technically speaking, you don't have to be baptized to go to heaven. But, uh, again, practically, uh, why would you say that you are a follower of Jesus Christ and then not follow through with believer's baptism? It'd be like... You know, me me joining the military, getting getting uh, uh, you know my my military uniform on, but then never showing up for duty. You know, it'd be like uh, having a, having a, a, a baby, uh, but then the the the, the baby uh, never never eats, never drinks, doesn't do anything. You know, something's wrong. Something's wrong if we don't follow through in believer's baptism. It's very, very important, and it's very, very exciting as we've been able to celebrate baptism this morning. So uh, if you're thinking, you know, if, if you are truly saved, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ and you're trying to figure out, well, I'm too afraid of being baptized or whatever it is that you're thinking, um, we just encourage you that if you tr- truly put your faith, faith and trust in Jesus Christ, um, you know, go ahead and follow through in believer's baptism. A piggyback question on that. Um, is there some other way to be baptized besides being dunked? <laughs> <coughs> well, um, yes and no. Um, yes, unless you want to be baptized biblically. 
Uh, and so, uh, I mean, th- this isn't like, uh, I mean, it's not, it's not like one of the fundamentals of the faith. So, uh, I mean, denominations who disagree with us, I mean, that's okay. We can agree to disagree, but they're wrong on this one. Uh, you know, we, we are a Baptist church, so you, you should expect this answer. But uh, really, but I mean, I, I guess the question would be, let me just phrase it in a positive way since I started out negative. Uh, be a little more, uh, yeah, a little more tactful, right? Maybe you should answer it then, Lori. Uh, uh, no, to frame it in a more uh, positive way is why do we baptize by immersion? And really, there, there's three reasons. First of all, there, it's the meaning of the word. Um, the word baptize is actually not a translation of a Greek word. It's a transliteration of the Greek word baptizo or different forms of that. And it, it means to place an object into another object. It means to immerse or in the context of water to make fully wet. And, and there really is no other meaning of that, um, you know, in, in secular Greek literature, there's examples of like uh, uh, that ba- a ship sinking and the word baptizo being used, that kind of thing. Um, the Bible never associates uh, sprinkling with baptism. It talks about sprinkling of blood, but uh, it, it's just what the word means. You read the word baptize, it means immerse, and there, and there really are no other options. Um, the second reason would just be the biblical example. Um, you know, Jesus was immersed in the Jordan River. Um, you don't go into a river and sprinkle people, right? I mean, I, I've, uh, I've baptized people in rivers, swimming pools, lakes, all kinds of things. Never t- gone to the trouble of going into a body of water to sprinkle somebody, Mark Sondermeyer Jr. Uh, kind of baptized himself in the lake. He swam to his baptism. Some of you who have been around for a while may remember that, but we still baptized him even after uh, he, he did that because of, um, you know, you're like Brandon did. You're confessing your, your faith uh, in, in Christ. Um, you know, in Acts uh, chapter 8, uh, Philip, they went down into water and he baptized the Ethiopian eunuch. I mean, it's just, it's the biblical example. But then the other reason would really be the symbolism of it. Um, Romans chapter 6, there's no actual water in Romans chapter 6. It's it's expressing the reality that uh, in Christ, we died to sin. We died to the old person. We're buried and we're raised, was raised again to walk in, in the newness of life. So water baptism symbolizes that. When, when someone goes under the water and is taken up out of the water, it's a picture of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's a picture of our death, burial, and resurrection, that we've died to sin in Christ. We've died to the old person. We've been buried with him, and now we've been raised again with Christ, seated in the heavenly places to walk in the newness of life. Only baptism by immersion can accurately symbolize that. Um, It symbolizes the complete washing away of our sins. Uh, It it symbolizes what 1 Corinthians 12, 13 says when it says that we were baptized, we were placed into the body of Christ. So when you're baptized, you're not only identifying yourself 
uh, with Christ and his death, burial, and resurrection. You're now identifying yourself as a member of the body of Christ. You're in Christ, but you're also in his church, brothers and sisters in, in Christ. And, and so really, uh, you know, sprinkling came about, uh, you know, a few hundred years after uh, the, the New Testament. And uh, if you want to be biblical I really don't think there's any other options on this one. And, uh, I mean, I've studied the other options. But, uh, you know, for me, that, that's a compelling case. And, you know, like I say, if, if other denominations do it differently, we're not going to say they're not genuine Christians or anything like that. But for us, a true life, this one's a non-negotiable. Clearly, many of our questions today are coming from personal um, situations and, and people's hearts and struggles, as does this question. Why do children rebel and sin when parents have taught them right from wrong and Christ values? What can we do for them when they do this, when they no longer live with us? Um, you know, I, I, I know that there's a lot of parents that struggle with this. Um, and and kind of just the simple answer is that we, we're all sinners. And even those of us, you know, when we think about God and we think about him even as the perfect parent and the fact that he's given us his word and he's given us all of these things and we still, you know, turn, turn kind of our backs on him and, and his word and, and the things that, that he has shown us um, and demonstrated to us. I mean, we have a God that not only gave us his word or, or said these things, but, you know, we have a God, Emmanuel, a God who came and was with us and died for us and did everything he could for us. And there are those of, at some point, you know, like Preston said, it's all of our story that we were against that. Um, whether we knew it or not. And then at some point, you know, we, we decide to kind of surrender our own will and, and accept what he's done for us. And so, so you know, that's, that's a little bit of a parallel in the fact that, that just because a person has heard the truth, you know, there is a difference, and the Bible makes that clear, there is a difference between hearing and doing. You know, James talks about that. You know, don't just be, be hearers of the word, but be, but be doers. And so there, there's that connection that has to be made between the two things. And that's, that's heartbreaking um, to, to see your child who you love reject what you know is best for them and to reject that love and that acceptance and, and that forgiveness. Um, and so... If a child doesn't live with you, you know, when this kind of goes back to that earlier question of honoring and obeying and stuff, I mean, you can, you can pray for your child. I um, mean, you know, there's that, the story in Luke, the prodigal son, where, I mean, the father released the son, right? And, and the simple fact was is that he didn't chase after him and, and go try to work things out for him when things went south. Um, you know, which we kind of call a fancy word enabling or, you know, something like that. But basically, you know, there was a point where sitting in a pig pen, it says, and then the son came to himself. And sometimes 
as heartbreaking and as painful as, as it is, the only way that some people are going to fully accept Christ and turn and come, come back to him or come to him is, is to come to the end of themselves. Is to sit there kind of in the, in the, the nastiness and to realize you know, like Brandon, <laughs> I can't do this on my own. And then, and come to themselves that way. And when, when a parent tries to go and out of love, not out of a malicious reason, but out of love tries to go keep working things out for them or, or figuring things out for them or, or rushing in to take care of them, we may be actually delaying them coming back to Christ. And that is so hard. That, that, is, that is horrible to realize. But in that moment, we have to decide, do we trust God? Do we trust his word? Do, can we lay our fears and anxieties and worries about that at his feet and just simply pray and, and trust him and trust them with, with him? And, and that is a very hard way to live. And it's, I don't think it's one of those things that you do once. And then you're like, okay, I did that. So, you know, now I'm good. Sometimes it's that you have to do that. You know, we sang the song today, I need thee every hour. And, you know, my version goes, I need thee every second, every, you know, because sometimes we just have to live in a state of where we're constantly handing that to him, that it's not a one and done kind of thing. And, and, and that's just the way that sometimes we have to live in those moments um, and just pray that, you know, through prayer and, and through having other people pray that, that they will turn back or come to him. Philip, is there anything you want to add to that? Well, I wouldn't have had you not said that, but... Um... <laughs> Yeah, with our, with our oldest daughter, you, and, and, you know, I've preached and from this pulpit and shared about her, and she's given permission to, to share her story and that sort of thing because she wants God to get glory. Um, but there came a point when our oldest daughter, Aletha, turned her back on the Lord and went a very... very dark path, very dangerous path. And, uh, you know, we, we knew that the way she was going, uh, she was headed off of, of, a, of a cliff. And uh, so, you know, we did like we would do any other person that we loved and cared for and had compassion for. We called out to her. We tried to exert our influence from a loving family to what we could do and, and call out to her and beg her to turn around, you know, repent, come back to the Lord and, and that sort of thing. You're heading off a cliff. But, but we also said, along with what Lori was saying, if this is the path you choose, and basically that's what she'd, even after we said that and pleaded with her in that way, she said, no, I'm going I'm to go this way. And so at that point, we, we said to her, again, we believe you're going off a cliff. Don't do that. You know, turn around. But if that's your choice, we cannot go with you. We are not going to enable you to go that direction. 
And, and so we stand here with our arms open wide. We love you, period. Unconditionally. Um, and if you turn around and, and, you know, we're here for you. But we, can't, we cannot enable you to go that direction. And so that's where we were for many months, just standing there um, and, and calling out to the Lord on her behalf in prayer. And by God's grace, uh, and in a really a miraculous way, God turned her around, and, and now she's living uh, for Christ. Philip, would you, would you agree that... Um it's important to try as much as possible, kind of as much as lies within us, to preserve the relationship, even if we're not supporting the choices. Most definitely, yeah. We we, and she wanted that. Now, you know, your child, if you're dealing with this kind of thing, may not want that. You know, and so, like Jimmy said, as much as within you, you do what you can to keep that uh, communication open. You know, let them know that you're there, that you love them no matter what, and, uh, you know, do what you can as, as of, often as you can, be with them, and that, that sort of thing, yeah. I think I would just add one thing to that to maybe address a particular aspect of the question. I, I, I think there's um, a lot of Christian teaching about parenting that's pretty bad, that's not really biblical, and I think the way the question was worded um, kind of mentioned one one of those ways. I think I think sometimes people have been taught, and it's really legalism. Like if if you do this, this, and this, and you put this, this, and this into your kid, they're going to turn out like this. And and if you don't, they're going to turn out like this, where it makes it like just incumbent on what the what the parent does. And um, th- that leaves out two key fa- three key factors. It leaves out the, the will factor, the sin factor, and the God factor. Because we all have a will. So at some point, they're going to choose, and, and we're all responsible for our choices. Listen, if we're adults, we can't blame our parents for our problems anymore. And, and that's one of the first keys to healing and having a, a different kind of life uh, is taking ownership for yourself. So you can teach them what's right, um, and they can willfully choose to go in a different direction. You can screw the whole thing up, and they can willfully choose to go in the right direction. But, but the reality is, is it always lies somewhere in between. We get some stuff right. We get some stuff wrong. Uh, I, I think... Probably as I get older, I've relaxed with this a little bit. Um, I mean, sometimes in, in, with good intentions, uh, I mean, some of you are, are, are trying to be godly parents, and you're driving yourself crazy because you think so much of it depends on you. And, and, and I, I'm not saying, you know, don't seek to do what Scripture says. I'm just saying relax and realize they have a will, and, and we're all sinners. We're all going to make bad choices. And at some point, we got to put them in God's hands and realize he's in control and, and pray and, um, you know, whatever's good in our kids is grace. 
at the end of the day. So I, I, don't, I don't think we can blame ourselves for all the bad. I don't think we can take credit for a whole lot of, uh, of what's good. I, I think at the end of the day, you know, we've got to factor these things in. And, and it's much more complicated than if you do this, they're going to do that. <clears throat> okay. What might be some fruits of a true believer? I know there's the fruit of the Spirit, but is that it? Or is there more as far as fruits of a true believer? Well, as far as spiritual fruits, some things the Bible specifically names, like you said, the fruit of the Spirit, which is character, the character of Christ, that's internal change. But the Bible also talks about leading others to Christ as fruit. It talks about uh, generosity, giving as fruit. It, it, it talks about uh, good works as fruit, and there's five. There's one that I'm forgetting, either one of you, anybody else happen to remember what it is, but that would at least be uh, most of the things the Bible talks about. When you're struggling with mental health issues, how can you work with Jesus to help your family understand and be there for you? You're the professional, Lori. <laughs> Well, I mean, in some ways, we all have mental health issues. I mean, um, I think that working with Jesus on those issues is is key, Um, but, but possibly even, you know, trying to talk to your family and help them understand what's going on with you, um through communication, through possibly, um, you know, having somebody else there to, to help you share what's been going on with you with all of those things. Um, I mean, the, the simple fact is, is that, you know, we all have struggles and issues and things that we deal with. I think, you know, and there's, there's a huge range of how that plays out in all of our lives. And, and if it's to the point that there are things that in your life that are safety issues, like, you know, thoughts of harming yourself or, or harming others or anything like that, I mean, those are things that, that, you know, you need some help and perspective outside of yourselves and some safeguards. Um, you know, there are some things that honestly we deal with um, when it comes to things that arise out of circumstances in our lives, like abuse and things like that, where some families just don't know how to deal with stuff like that. They don't want to deal with stuff like that. Um, you know, one of the common things that I have heard in, in the last 24 years being a counselor is, you know, I went to my parents or I went to my family and I told them this and they didn't believe me. Um, and how destructive and damaging that can be to that relationship. Um, But it may be that part of that unbelief doesn't come out of, you know, just a maliciousness. It comes out of just a complete ignorance, um, which is, is just saying they don't know what to do with it and they don't understand and, and that kind of stuff. So if there's a willingness there for them to learn then by all means, you know, that should be part of that equation. But not everybody even then wants to learn about it. They just are very comfortable running in the lane they're in, and they don't really want to deal with anything outside of that lane. 
So at that point, I would say to find people, though, that, that can support you and can love you through things and can teach you and give you that perspective. Um, I heard a lot of statistics this week, um, all the kind of 2018 stuff rolled out to where it, it basically said that one in five Americans now has some sort of drug or alcohol addiction. One out of five. So even if we do the numbers of everybody that was here today, um, one out of 10 people is on some form of antidepressant or anti-anxiety medication. Um, in 2018, opioid-related deaths passed car wrecks. Okay, that's a big one. <laughs> um, and the suicide rate climbed higher than it has in the last 20 years, and we're at 25% now. Last year was our deadliest year, and it's across all age groups. It's not just teenagers. Um, the highest age group that it grew in was 35 to 45-year-olds. So obviously we're struggling. Obviously we're getting something wrong somewhere in the equation because you don't get these kind of numbers and statistics if, if everything's okay. Um, and so there's a lot of pain out there, a lot of hurt. I mean, part of, I think, the, a huge root of all of that is, you know, kind of our false belief that we've developed of, you know, I get to decide what's right for myself. I get to decide what's truth. I get to say what works for me and, you know, you do you and I'll do me and, and then that'll be great. Well, if that's true, then we should be seeing the least anxious generation we've ever seen. If that's true, we should be seeing, you know, opioid deaths decline. You know, if we should be, if we're, if all that's true, then those numbers should not be climbing at the rates they're climbing. So obviously, it's not true to believe those things. It's because, you know, we've, we've talked about it before. We kind of unhinged ourselves from, from God and his word, from reason, from logic. And now we're just doing whatever we want to do and creating our own truth in the moment. And that can even change tomorrow if I want it to. But obviously, that doesn't work because we're the most anxious, most depressed, most addicted generation that we've ever seen. And yes, I think, you know, kind of the assimilation of, of the media and social media and all these things has helped perpetuate that at alarming rates. There's nothing new under the sun, but now everything that's under the sun we can know about, you know, every second of every day if we want to. And we have access to it in ways that we've never had before. But it's not working. People need Jesus. And, and that's the only thing entering into that story that's going to make a difference and so how do, people, how do people meet Jesus? They meet them through us sharing the gospel and us living out our faith and us entering into people's pain and stories and being willing to get our hands dirty. That, that's what turns it around and not compromising truth. Um, so, so sometimes people's families will do that for them and will learn those things. And sometimes it has to be and should be their, their church family or, or the church, us. Okay. Um, I think we're going to, that's going to be our last question because we have a, we're going to do some more later. But 
Oh, the next. Okay, we have one more. Sorry. Sorry about that. Okay, next. This will be our last question. And if your question didn't get addressed during the service, like I said, we'll be doing it afterwards. Um, do you believe gays and lesbians go to heaven? If not, what's a good way to approach someone living in that sin and reach out to them? I don't know. What do you want to answer? Or you want me to? <laughs> that, that was the question you should have asked. <laughs> um, hey, I can you um, put First uh, Corinthians six on the screen? Um, maybe starting about verse. Nine. Okay, so Scripture says, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor, uh, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. That's the answer. Um, I mean, I can maybe amplify, give some explanation. But, I mean, that, that's what God says. Basically, what, what the Bible teaches us is that if we don't repent of sin and place our faith in Jesus, we're separated from God. Um, that could be any sin, I mean, you, you notice, maybe go back to verse 9, if you would. Uh, you know, verse 9 and 10 name several different types of sins. And this, this isn't designed to be an exhaustive list. It's a, it's a representative uh, list. I mean, there's over a thousand commands in the New Testament. There's a, a lot of different things the Bible uh, names as, as sin. And, and so, um, at the end of the day, here's what we know. Scripturally, we're all sinners. We all need a Savior. Jesus is that Savior. But we also know that we sin in different ways. And one way is not better or worse than another. There may be some different earthly consequences to it. So I think what we need to try to do is... Um, First of all, I, I don't believe that homosexuals are a category of people. Just like I don't believe adulterers are a category of people or thieves are a category of people. We're all, made, we're all people who are made in the image of God, who have, are fallen and we sin, but we're tempted in different ways. And there's no virtue in resisting a temptation that's not a temptation to you. Uh, Billy Graham said that. So, uh, you know, just because I'm not tempted uh, in some way by another man, I mean, there's no virtue in me not being with them. It's just not a thing for me. If there's someone that that is a thing, that that's a temptation for, that they're wrestling with that, they don't need our condemnation. They need our love. Um, Sin, sin. We, we all sin. We, we just do it in, in, in different ways. So I don't, I don't think we need to, to categorize people. And so that means we don't need to, you know, mistreat, condemn, abuse, 
hurt, looked down upon homosexuals. At the same time, we don't need to excuse homosexual behavior. That's the issue. See, where we've lost the battle on this issue is once people believe you're born this way, to to quote the song, um, there's not much left to discuss then. But that's not a scientific fact, and it's not really what the Bible teaches. Now, I'm not saying there's not genetic inherent things that affect us because the fall affects us. There may be some things because of the fall that we're predisposed to. I mean, some, some, there, there's people sitting in this room, say, that are 17 now when they're 21. They could take their first drink and it'd be nothing. There's other people that the way you're wired, you take that first drink, you're going to become an alcoholic. Uh, but there's still choice there. And, and there's still choice uh, when, when it comes to this. And, and so, um, you know, I... I'm not, I'm not into just you know, classifying individual people as whether or not they're going to heaven or, or, or not. Um, I don't think that's the, the right way to frame a question. It's about an issue. And so, um, you know, the, the Bible teaches that homosexuality is a sin. I mean, this is one example. You know, read Romans chapter 1, and then you'll find out what God uh, says about it. But really what the Bible teaches is that any sexual activity outside of monogamous heterosexual marriage is sin. That's the, that's the issue. Uh, God says, Genesis 2, Jesus quoted in Matthew chapter 19, a man shall leave his father and mother, be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And first of all, only a man and a woman can really become one flesh. Uh, that's God's designed us that way. So we don't believe this just because of Bi- the Bible. We believe this because of natural law. Uh, but the Bible says you leave, you make a public commitment, then you consummate the relationship. That's why even heterosexual sex outside of marriage is wrong. It's why couples living together outside of marriage is wrong. Uh, th- that's why, uh, you know, one of the things, I mean, you look at the history of true life things, we thank God for, we thank God for 501 baptisms. I thank God for the uh, several couples, uh, both here and in Honduras, who are living together for a long time, who have now uh, gotten married. So we're, we're not here uh, to pick on homosexuals. Uh, now, it's going to be uh, taken that way by some. We're, we're here to say, God's design, one man, one woman, one lifetime, and, and try to help people uh, pursue and, and live out what God has commanded us to do by his grace. The reality is, though, when you say something's true, you're saying something else is false. When you say something's right, you're saying something else is wrong. So by, by definition, when we say this is what's right, we're excluding any other type of behavior. Um, but we're not condemning someone who's engaged in any of those behaviors. We're saying Jesus loves you. He wants to help you. He's here for you. And that uh, there's salvation in his name through repentance of sin and faith in his person and, and, and work. And that's true of any sin. And so uh, it's not the loving thing to do to condemn sinners. But it's not the loving thing to do to excuse sin Because in excusing sin, 
then you're condemning sinners to hell because there's no hope for their salvation as long as their sin is excused. So we're going to try to do the loving thing based on God's definition of love and not the world's uh, definition uh, of love. Uh, We're going to proclaim Jesus and we're going to proclaim the gospel and we are going to proclaim him as the only hope for any and all of us because... uh, that's the case. I do think that's a, a great question to end with and a great, I, I really appreciate your answer um, and the, the heart behind that. I, I did receive one <clears throat> something over the, over the weekend. I was asked to share it this morning, not as a question, but as a comment, if that's okay. And we can close with that and let you, I'll let you take over the floor then after that, if that's okay. Okay. Um, it's a scripture, um, Hebrews thirteen seven says, Remember your leaders who taught you the word of God. Think of all the good that ca- has come from their lives and follow the example of their faith. And this person said, I want to thank our panel for being here to answer our questions. Also, thank you for ministering to us and growing our faith. Thanks to all the faithful leaders at TLC. We love you and God bless you. Well, thank you to whoever said that. Okay. So we're back for the rest of our question and answer panel. Uh, we have just a few questions to, to do, and I'm going to just uh, throw the first one out. Is there any sin that can't be forgiven? Well, the only one that the Bible mentions is uh, what Jesus referred to as blaspheming the Holy Spirit, which in the particular context seemed to be that they were, that the, some of the Religious leaders were attributing miraculous works of Jesus uh, as the works of the devil. And, um, you know, it, it seems to me it was just a complete, utter rejection of Christ. Um, you know, the Bible teaches any particular sin God will forgive us for if we come to Jesus, if we quench the Spirit, if we reject Christ, just utterly, finally, completely. Uh, reject him, if in some way maybe we can cross a line where we're uh, attributing the works of Jesus to uh, the, the, the devil. And, you know, I, I don't know exactly what qualifies as blasphemy in the Holy Spirit, but, I mean, that would be the, the only um, exception to that. I mean, God's a forgiving God. Jesus died for all of our sins on the cross, and, and I would say just to be practical, because I've been asked this question before more than once by people worried about if they've blasphemed the Holy Spirit, if they've committed the unpardonable sin. I, I would feel a hundred percent confident in saying to you, if you're concerned about that, you haven't done it. Uh, I mean, if, if you still have, uh, you know, a conscience and uh, you know just a fear of God and. and a desire to be forgiven of sin, then the Holy Spirit's working in your life and you should accept his, oppor- his call, take advantage of the opportunity and repent and trust Christ so you can be forgiven because he will forgive you. Okay, if we should pray using the Lord's Prayer, where in Scripture does it allow us to pray to him outside the Lord's Prayer? I can start off with that one, and y'all can help out. Um, yeah, the the Lord's Prayer really would be better titled the model prayer, 
because Jesus was not giving uh, that prayer as a prayer that we should always pray, but rather it was an example. And there were principles in the Lord's Prayer. We call it the Lord's Prayer. It's also called the model prayer. Uh, but the, he gives principles in that prayer of, of how we should pray. You know, we should honor and, uh, and, and recognize the holiness of God. You know, by saying our Father, we should call out to him as our Father. And, you know, he, he deals with, uh, you know, praying for our, our, our daily needs. Uh, uh, you know, our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be your name. You know, recognizing the holiness of his name and, and giving him honor. And there are principles there, you know, praying for your daily needs. Uh, give us this day our, our daily bread and, and so on and so forth. So all of those things are principles that the Lord is giving us in that prayer. Uh, but uh, that prayer is not the only prayer uh, that can be prayed. It can be prayed, and I would just say that the Lord meant for it to be followed as an example rather than a prayer that we all always have to pray. And I guess the, the second part of the question is, how else can we pray, or how was that again? Um, sorry, I'm not still on that question. Um, it was, um, how, where does the Scripture allow us to pray outside of the Lord's Prayer? Well, and, and, and you know, the Scripture has tons about prayer, um, you know, how to pray, uh, you, you know, with humility. Uh, you know, James says, you have not because you ask not. You, 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 you have not because you ask amiss. In other words, you, you, you ask for things that, uh, you know, maybe m there are different ways that we can ask amiss or ask in the wrong way. We can ask uh, sometimes selfishly in ways that, that are not, uh, you know, th things that, that are not honoring and glorifying to God, things that are not good for ourselves or other people, and because God is a, a good God and a loving Father, He doesn't uh, say yes to those pray prayers. And like Jimmy said earlier today, you know, uh, God God answers our prayers yes, uh, no, and and sometimes you know maybe or wait a while. Um, and, but there are tons of other passages of Scripture that that e are either prayers of uh, the saints of God or or examples in prayer, uh, you know, Nehemiah prayed uh, a wonderful prayer of, of repentance and, and, uh, and calling out to God for uh, restoration and healing and uh, prayers of, of uh, sometimes prayers of confusion. You know, David oftentimes in, in the Psalms and, uh, you know, just said, Lord, why? Why is this happening? You know, and uh, sometimes confusion, sometimes uh, even prayers that God would uh, vindicate him, his servant, uh, in serving the Lord and, and, and those kinds of things. So uh, definitely the, the, the model prayer is not uh, designed, it seems, from, uh, from the Lord to be the only prayer that we can pray or, uh, or, or even a, a prayer that we have to repeat every time we come to the Lord in prayer. Rather, the, all of God's Word 
seems to indicate that prayer is simply communicating with a, a loving God. And, 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 and I would say that, that, that really, you know, the, 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 the first prayer that any of us should pray in terms of having a relationship with God it would be the repentant prayer, prayer of repentance, uh, confessing that we are sinners, that we can't save ourselves, and uh, that, that Jesus is, uh, you know, the Son of God. He is uh, the Savior, and, and that we need Him to save us from our sins. That's, that's really where a relationship with God starts. But then after that, we, we can come to God as a loving Father and, and bring our, our victories, our, our woes, our, you know, afflictions that, that we're going through, sufferings, problems, uh, our needs, whatever is on our hearts, uh, the Scripture teaches us that we can come to God with those things in prayer. Well, this next question is a specific question in nature. It's kind of got a, um, a more broad, I think you could answer it in a more broad way to apply to, uh, to a larger question in our society. It says, there's several Christian sports teams or businesses that want to only hire people that are Christians and not allow sinners or people who identify differently sexually to work or play on their team. Is this really the way God intends us to act? Other than ministry positions in the church, should we really try to separate ourselves from the world so much that we are making it impossible to influence these people's lives? Is it right to not allow people into our teams and jobs just because they're sinners? Where do we draw the line? I'm not familiar with yeah. that particular... Are you familiar with businesses or sports teams that... Well, I mean, if not being a sinner keeps you... I mean, nobody would get to be hired because we're all sinners. Um, but I'm not familiar with that specifically. I mean, ultimately, no matter where God places us, you know, our, our job here is to know God and, 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 and then make Him known to other people. And so wherever God places us, whatever job school position, whether it's quote-unquote Christian or not, I mean, it's our job to use that as our platform to share the gospel and, and to, to show the love of Christ. So, I mean, I think it's God's intention that Christians be placed everywhere because that's the mission field. But it's, maybe to repeat the question, are they, are they saying Christians like excluding non-Christians from working or participating with them? Is, is, that, the, is that the question? Why do we do that instead of letting them work in the Christian organizations um, so that we can influence them? Why, why would we? Is, is they're asking, isn't that wrong? Shouldn't we be more inclusive? With that kind well, of thing? maybe that helps me understand a little better. I mean, I, you know, I, I would say for any, I mean, maybe it's going to be different with, you know, government kind of jobs, but I mean, for any private business, I think, um, I mean, you know, I mean, uh, uh, apart from things that are, you know, legal issues, moral issues in and of themselves, like racism or whatever, I mean, I, I think people should have the freedom to hire who they feel comfortable uh, hiring for their particular organization. And if somebody, um, you know, chooses not to hire me because I am a Christian, I think that's in their rights if they don't feel 
comfortable with that. But I mean, I, I think if something is a, you know, quote, Christian business or whatever, and, and, and they have certain standards that they feel like that their employees should maintain, I mean, I feel like they have the, 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 the right to do that. And, and maybe it would depend on, you know, the nature of the, of, of the business. Uh, and, you know, we, we are certainly to be around non-Christians uh, to, uh, you know, try to be a good influence on them. But um, I don't know. I think of a business like Lifeway, maybe, you know, that's a Christian bookstore. And, and I don't really know what their uh, hiring policies are. But if they felt like if, you know, a certain lifestyle issue was, wasn't something that they wanted their employees to have, I, I do feel like that would be their right. But... Uh, I'm not sure how to answer it any more specifically than that, I don't think. Okay. Um, <clears throat> earlier in the first service, we talked about um, the word tolerance came up, and we talked about that. And, and someone uh, kind of referenced off of that question. <clears throat> it says, speaking of tolerance, many biblical stories ha are about men uh, that have many wives and many children, uh, but we're supposed to be monogamous. And um, also, it seems like, to this question, person who asked this question, that only women in the past seem to be condemned for adulterous actions, like in the Bible. So, um, I guess the question is why, you know, why is it represented that way in the Bible when we're supposed to be monogamous? Well, um, I mean, as far as the, the first question, um, you know, there are passages in Scripture that are there's prescriptive passages, there's descriptive passages. A prescriptive passage contains a command or principle or this is how God is telling us to be, this is what he's telling us to do. A descriptive passage is one where, um, I mean, it's, it's history. I mean, there, there's, uh, yeah, and, and so, um, I mean, the prescriptive passage, God himself said in Genesis 2, Man shall leave his father and mother, be joined to his wife. The two shall become one flesh. That's God's prescription. That marriage is a one flesh relationship. The, yes, the Old Testament describes uh, times when men, even supposedly men of God, uh, who were disobeying God at that point, who, that they had more than one wife. And, but it also lays out the consequences that came from that. And... They weren't positive. So, uh, I mean, that's how it answered the first part. As far as the second part, um, I, I mean, I, I think the, the, the intent or the thrust of the question, I, I would agree with. Maybe some of the specifics, I think, aren't necessarily correct. I mean, in the Old Testament, a man and a woman who were caught in adultery, they were both stoned. Uh, I mean, it wasn't just a, a woman thing. Now, I understand that over, down through the years that women have been oppressed, mistreated by men sexually and in, and in other ways. But, uh, I mean, you know, I think about the New Testament passage in John chapter 8 when uh, the Pharisees brought the woman caught in adultery to Jesus. And, of course, their motives were all wrong. And, you know, he pointed out their sin, and then he forgave her. And so, uh, I, I mean, I, I believe that's the heart of, uh, of, of Christ. And in, in reality... Um, where Christianity's flourished, uh, the, the treatment and the rights of women have increased. Where it's not, it's decreased. Now, that doesn't mean it's always been what it should be. Uh, but, uh, you know, when, I think when people read the Bible correctly, 
they're going to see that uh, women are made in the image of God, that are valued and treasured, that men and women are equal. I mean, we believe God's given different roles, but that he would never uh, approve or condone of the, the mistreatment of women sexually or otherwise. And that would be against God, against the Bible. Just It would be not, not something that would honor Christ. Why do we see so much disease, suffering, sickness in the world, especially in children? Because we live in a fallen world. and The world's in a state of decay. It's not what God created it to be. I mean, everything fell when Adam and Eve sinned. Um, I mean, our, our bodies are in a state of decay. Uh, the world's in a state of decay. Uh, you know, and, and all these things work together um, you know, and there's choices that are made that, that add to that. But, um, I mean, I can't tell you why a, a specific child gets sick. But the reason that children get sick is because you know, we live in a fallen world. And, um, I mean, things aren't what they were created to be. Jesus someday is coming back and he's going to restore everything to the paradise that God created it to be. But until then... We can't have heaven on earth, and there's going to be sin and sickness and trials and suffering and sorrow and tribulations, and none of us are, are going to avoid it. I mean, uh, I mean, some people may have it worse than others, but we all experience uh, those things to different degrees. Okay, this question is about Adam and Eve's son, Cain. It says, who is God protecting Cain from, and where did Cain get a wife? Me. Um, well, in that passage, you know, after Cain kills Abel and, and God's kind of dealing with him, it says that God kind of marked Cain, um, gave him some sort of a mark. And that was as a form of protection so that no one would harm or kill him. Um, and then, then it says he kind of went out, you know, from where they had been living and he married a wife and started a family and... And so, the, so obviously there were other people around for him to find a wife from. <laughs> and so, I mean, you know, at some point, I mean, Adam and Eve probably had other children. And, I mean, the Bible talks about some other stuff in those early passages <laughs> that I think sometimes we sort of scratch our heads, you know, where the... The daughters of men married the, you know, the sons of God. And it talks about giants and it talks about all these things. I mean, there's some of that. We just kind of read that and we're like, wow, I don't maybe understand all of how this was going down or what was happening. But, but the Bible does say those things were there and, and were happening. Yeah, and I mean, there's, I don't know if this is where this is coming from, but sometimes you know you get this question kind of in this form. It's like kind of asking about incest, and of course there's uh, prohibitions in Scripture against that, but they weren't given yet. And in reality, if the creation story is true, I mean it it had to be close relatives to start with. I mean there's just really no way uh, around that. And and I know people can cringe a little bit at at, at that, but. Um, you know, I mean, there, there's so many leaps in logic you have to make to assume the evolutionary story is true, too, because, you know, people just appear fully formed and not related and able to procreate and those kind of things. And then there's the whole idea of, 
you know, irreducible complexity that transitional forms can't actually survive and those kind of things. So um, I think that's something to keep in mind if you kind of wrestle with that aspect of it. Yeah, just, just briefly to go along with that, uh, you, you, I, think it, I think we need to also remember that at that time, you know, people were living a lot longer. And so, uh, you know, I was looking at that just the other day, how that, uh, um, you know, generations would pass. And I was trying to remember Seth, you know, after the flood, uh, lived long enough to, um, I was trying to remember who it was, but, but like several generations later, he was still around to see his great, 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 I think it was to the seventh generation grandson. I, I can't remember now the details about what I was looking at. But so with that in mind, there's a lot of kids and grandkids and great grandkids coming out, you know. So the obvious, like you said, whether we, we kind of cringe about it, but obviously Cain's wife was, was a, 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 either a sister or a, a niece, or a great niece, or something like that. So, and um, like I guess one of the other earlier questions, they did have multiple wives often in those days as well. So, uh, we don't like it necessarily. Scripture is progressive, and we don't have that injunction, you know, that that command to to not have incest till later. Uh, that was the only way that could have been. I think you look at it in a way, too, though. I mean, because sometimes people say, well, how can we believe the Bible if, I, you know, if it did all this? But, um, you know, one of the things historians look at evaluating the historical accuracy of a document is something called the criterion of embarrassment. I mean, does it say, is it honest about things that make the people that it's writing about look bad? And there's a lot of that in the Bible, honestly. I mean, there's a, you know, it's not sanitizing, uh, sugarcoating people's lives and their sin, their mistakes and those kind of things. So, uh, I mean, that would actually give it historical credibility as opposed to if everything was just rosy and perfect and that kind of thing. Well, C.S. Lewis said, I mean, that's one of the things that, you know, because, I mean, he didn't come to faith in Christ until he was in his 40s. But, I mean, he said that was one of the things that made the Bible more believable to him was that he was like, if, you know, you were going to make this up, this is not what you would have made up or how you would have presented things. This is, that doesn't make logical sense. And so I think that, that for him, that became a proof of it, of it being real because it does have those things in it and does paint people. And, and often kind of who we kind of call heroes of faith, they've all got blemishes on their record. Okay, this is our final question. Is demon possession still something that happens in our modern day world, or is that just what we call mental illness? Well, you want to speak to this from a uh, you know counselor standpoint. I don't know, Philip. Mm -hmm. You want to speak to it maybe from the spiritual mm -hmm. side because I bet you've had more experience with this since you were in Africa. Um, I mean, before all mental illness was kind of explained through just you know, the supernatural demon possession. And so now we know that not all mental illness is that, that sometimes it's just a chemical imbalance or if, or a lot of times it's, 
its circumstances and, and reaction to those. Um, so that, that was the common belief in the past. And, and I don't think most people probably believe that now just because I think, you know, most people kind of deny that that site exists at all. But I do believe that, that there are, especially, I mean, you see it in other parts of the world, I think kind of with, with the mask off, with the disguise off, that, that there are sometimes that, that there is, that is at play um, and that that is part of the reality of what's going on is um, that happening. But obviously not all mental illness is that. Right. And, and uh, you know, when you look at Scripture, Scripture, sometimes this question is worded, how do you tell the difference? You know, how do you tell the And I've had that question as well myself, even as a missionary in Africa, uh, where we served for, for 14 years with the International Mission Board. Uh, you know, how do you tell the difference between someone who's, who's simply mentally disturbed or someone who's possessed with a demon? And really, Scripture doesn't, Scripture doesn't do that. Scripture doesn't teach you how to... Uh, you know, tell the difference. But but what Scripture does say is that, you know, and we see it oftentimes, and Jesus dealt with it himself, uh, you know, not, I, I, think, I think it's important to, to understand and see in Scripture that Jesus doesn't go chasing after the devil to run him out of someone. He dealt with the devil when he was faced as Jesus went about doing his father's will and so when he was faced with that situation he dealt with it with the authority that he had and um, I believe that he has given that same authority he gave it to his apostles and 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 also we have because we have Jesus in us as our Lord and master we have that authority to uh, to speak to uh, the devil or demons um, and, and we saw that on the mission field where some people, you know, and, and what you can do is look at the New Testament and see, you know, what are characteristics that are true of a demon-possessed person. And uh, certainly, uh, you know, a person who uh, is against Christ, you know, is not, who is not, uh, uh, you know, who can't sit still uh, with with the, the, the name and the gospel of Jesus Christ being proclaimed, that, that would be an indicator. And then, you know, John, 1 John uh, talks about uh, how that you can, uh, you know, you, we need to test the spirits. And, and, he, and he tells us that, that, that anyone who says that Jesus Christ uh, was, was not the Son of God and was not in, in, you know, that he, that he was not human, uh, that he not come in the flesh, uh, then, then that, that, you know, that, that's not the spirit of Christ. That's a, the spirit of the Antichrist. And, and so, uh, you know, there are things in Scripture whereby we can, we can judge and discern, uh, discern is the better word, discern, you know, if that person is possessed with a demon and then, you know, by faith, we can uh, call on that demon to leave, and, uh, you know, in the name and, and blood of Jesus Christ. So.
That's it. Thank you so much for all the questions. Thank you again for our panel who um, very faithfully answered or attempted to answer every single question. Um, and all of all three service, well, two services and this after service can be seen um, on our website this week.